Hi, Farah. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Um, for everyone who is tuning in today, we have Farah X, um, an award-winning director and editor. Um, some of your clients have been Prince, Mariah Carey, and Beyonce. So I think we have a lot to talk about today. Thank um, you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Could you maybe just tell us about how you got interested in film and post-production? Yeah, I um, didn't know what I wanted to do coming out of high school. And so I did, I think, what my sister was doing. She was a business major at Berkeley. I'm like, okay, I'll just go get a business degree and try to figure it out. But um, I had went to community college for a couple of years and I stumbled across this um, cinema club in community college. And I just saw people my age making films with Super 8 cameras and editing them and screening them. I'm like, this is really cool. And so from there, I just started making films and um, just kind of fell in love with the whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a friend of a friend was an editor, which I didn't even know what that was. You know, I knew you had to edit films, but I had no idea what that was. And so I went to his house once and he had this Avid, this is back in the day of Avid. So like whole room for a machine, you were talking like late nineties. Um, he had this Avid and so I just was watching him edit something and I just was fascinated. So I decided, um, after my senior year, no, sorry, this was early college after my second year of, um, community college that I wanted to learn editing. So one summer I just took a boot camp in Avid for like a two month intensive and, and then that was it. You were hooked from there? I was hooked, yeah. I was like, this is like storytelling, but visual storytelling. So it was amazing to me because I always was into visuals. I was always into like creating. And now that I look back on it, I always used to dab, grab my dad's video camera when I was like eight, nine, 10 and just film things. And then sometimes I would put two VCRs together and then edit it together. So anytime there was a school project, I would try to do something video. So I, it, it, like hindsight, it made sense that this was a career I chose, but I had no idea that it could be a career. Mm -hmm. Once you started out, so after community college, did you ever like, did you ever doubt the choice that you had made? No, I went to, um, so after community college, I decided I'm not gonna go to business school. And so I applied, I was in living in LA at the time. So I applied to the two film schools that were some of the tops because I didn't want to move to New York at the time, which is where I am now. Um, I applied to UCLA and USC and they both rejected me for the film school program. But USC offered me um, that I could come in as an undecided major or undeclared. And basically everyone in undeclared at USC pretty much was, we called it film school in waiting because you just got into like, figure it out. So then I got in and I started taking all the film classes that I could under the undeclared major. And I just, I was so in love with it. So then I think I applied to film school, their film school four times before I finally got in. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But I knew, I mean, I fell in love with it. The first film class I took, I was like, this is it. This is, this is what I'm supposed to do. Uh-huh. No rejection letter could hold you back. No. <laughs> That's no. awesome. I know it must have been really painful to get those, to like to be rejected a couple of times. It really sucks. Especially because I didn't have backup when I initially applied. It was just USC or UCLA. And then when they both rejected me at first, I'm like, I have no place to go now. But I feel like there's always a path. You just mm -hmm. have to stick with it. Did you wait like a semester to reapply or did you like, was there still time to get into USC? So right after they sent me their initial rejection letter for film school, I got an acceptance letter for the okay. undecided. And then every semester I reapplied. So the second semester I applied, um, after my first semester there, I applied and I got into their critical studies. 
but I wanted to be in production. So then I applied to production another semester later and I got into a waiting list. And then, I, then what happened is I took a class because I was in critical studies, so I was in the production, I mean, I was in the film program, so I had more access to classes. So I saw who the Dean of Admissions was. She had a class, she had a very small women in film class. So I took a class with her, took office hours with her. And she's like, so what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to be in production. And then the next time I applied, I got accepted. So nice. it might be about who you know and networking. <laughs> and it's also about persistence. Yeah. Well, you made it and you made it in school. How did you know when you made it in your career after school? Um, I feel like that's something that comes up again and again. Like there's always a new marker for what made it means. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, right after school, made it meant that I was an assistant editor on some amazing music videos. And then, then it made it meant when I was actually editing music videos. And now for me, made it meant when I directed a doc and I also edited or one of the editors on the doc. And then the next made it means, I don't know what, you know, like there's always, I feel like it's always a moving uh, goalpost. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about working as a, a personal editor. That's not something many people have, you know, that they can say that they've yeah. done, especially for people like Mariah Carey. Like, what was <laughs> that like? And how did, how did you get there? And what did, I, I don't, did you know her personally? Like, did you guys hang out and go get coffee and stuff? <laughs> no, what happened is, um, I had a mentor, Sana Hamri, in college, right out of college, and she was an editor and a director, and she knew Mariah. So I started assistant editing on a lot of Mariah projects. And then um, after a while, Sana needed to leave, like to go back to LA. We were in New York on a project, she had to go back to LA. She's like, you can take over the edit. So then I started traveling with Mariah to edit this one project that was like, a, it's kind of like a doc, but it was more of like a fun project for her. Um, and then since then, then we just started, I just started working on a lot of her stuff. So then whenever there would be a project, I would fly out to wherever she is and work with her and travel with her. And yeah, we would hang out and, you know, it was, it's like, it's crazy that post-production let me like do all these amazing things of traveling the world with someone and get paid to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started working with Mariah probably in the early 2000s. And the last time I worked with her was probably a couple of years ago. So I'm hoping, you know, we still continue the relationship, but it always, we would ebb and flow throughout, depending on her needs and whatever. But yeah, I've known her for quite some time. So I've actually spent Christmas with her in uh, Colorado and Aspen and stuff. So I would consider her a friend at this point. Mm -hmm. But um, it's been like, I would never have thought that being an editor would allow me to like do this kind of stuff. Yeah. What do you think the key is to, to, to getting that kind of stuff? Is it like, uh, is it relationships? Is it being personable with people? Is it going to school? Like wh what I do you think? think school. I think it is relationships and being personable. I think it's about figuring out like the personality of, you know, celebrities you have all this stigma around it before you go to it, but they're really just people and just treating them like people. And, but you know, it's a sense, it's also a trust. Like she trusts me and knows that she could talk about stuff with me and I won't go spilling it to the news, which is a big thing for people like that. Yeah. So I think it's just about um, personality being personable and then also working your ass off. I mean, I don't know. 
I think there was one project where I don't think I slept for, maybe I slept two hours in 70, 72 hours. Like wow. it was really fast turnaround. So it's, so it's a lot of glamor, but it's also like a ton of crazy hours. Like sometimes yeah. I would go to her house at 11 in the morning and then she wouldn't come down till one in the morning to work with me. So, you know, it's, there's a lot of hard work that goes into it as well. Uh-huh. What are some of the editing strategies that you use in situations like that? Do you, like, do you find a rhythm to somehow edit faster? Because we all know, you know, editing takes time, right? Yeah. Is there anything that you do to, to be better um, in that situation when you're working incredibly long hours for fast turnaround? I mean, I do feel like there's a point of no return, right? Or a point of diminishing returns. At some point, like the, the, the logic is you just keep working. But at some point, you're, not, you're making bad decisions and you're not actually furthering anything. You're kind of doing stuff that you'll have to undo. Mm-hmm. So it's really knowing when you're not making good decisions anymore and taking, taking like little naps even. But in terms of working fast, um, I've just always been a fast editor. Um, for whether that's good or bad, <laughs> maybe if I took longer, things would be better. I don't know. But I've just always been like, I just know when I make a decision and you know how many decisions we make in one project. When I make a decision, I just move on to the next. I don't second guess it. So I feel like I've just always been rather quick. Uh-huh. Um, and then in terms of like working with a client like Mariah, just being prepped and having time with the footage ahead of time, if possible, and just pulling all the best selects and pulling like, for her, I would pull selects of, okay, this is great smiles, or this is a great walking shot, or this, and just have them all ready because I know she'd want to see everything. Mm-hmm. Just being prepared, yeah. Does it, is it more, um, I saw this documentary once about what it was like to be the personal photographer for um, Mar- Marilyn Monroe mm-hmm. and, and how she was so um, careful about her image and, and what she wanted people to see. And it was personal and it was, you know, so much more than somebody else making those decisions for like, like a feature film, it's going to be different, right? Um, What are some of the ways that it's different working for a celebrity than maybe a big post-production house? I mean, that's exactly it. It's their livelihood is their image. And you really have to understand what their image is and what they want to portray to the world. And people might say like, oh, these celebrities are so picky or whatever, but if a bad image of them gets out, the amount of bad press they get for like, we all have bad pictures. You know, you open up your phone and the FaceTime is facing the wrong way. It's like, oh God. So it's really about protecting their image. And it's not, I don't think it's being picky. It's their brand. And they have to be very selective what they put out there because they are a walking brand. So that's one of the reasons why Mariah and I work so well together because I got to know her brand really quickly. And then I knew what angles look good on her and what she liked. And when I say look good on her, it's what she likes because I think she's a beautiful woman and things that I think look good, she won't like because she doesn't like that part of herself or whatever, that the angle. So I really quickly got to know what she likes and only showed that stuff in the edits. So she really started to trust me a lot to the point where I would be on set when we're shooting something and she would always make sure that I'm watching a monitor that it looks good. And it's, I think it's just being a smart businesswoman or a businessman to have that much creative control over what your image goes out there because mm-hmm. it is, it is your brand. And if, if it's off brand, then people are not going to understand. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. No, it's it's just it's basic marketing, I think. Yeah. It feels like you're really investing yourself. You're like you're pouring yourself into the life of another person. And you're yeah. spending all that time thinking about their needs and how do you make time for yourself or you know, if you how do you make time for your friends? How do you make time for your exercise or your family in that situation? Well, it was always a freelance situation. So I was lucky that when there'd be a project, I'd go and I'd pour myself into it. And my friends would know that, okay, she's gone for a few months on a Mariah job or a few weeks. Usually it was never a few months, maybe a month most. And then, then when it was done, I'd come back and pick up my life and work with other clients. So it's not like I was on staff editor. I was just the one that would get called when there were shoots and stuff. So I, I don't think for me personally, it's not sustainable to be like that constantly. I just... I I need my own personal time. I need my own space. But when those projects come along, I just know that everything's on hold. And for the next duration of time, my whole world is going to be this project. Sleep is going to be limited, you know, and and then you just know there's an end in sight. So you can, that kind of gets you to the goalpost when you're on the umpteenth hour and you're not thinking straight because you're so exhausted. Uh And not all your projects are like that. I don't want to paint a grim picture, but sometimes their deadlines are really tight. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a freelance situation that makes it doable. That's really interesting. And so in, so in the situation that we're in right now, like as a country, um, like people that have nine to five jobs can file for what unemployment and then receive benefits right now. Yeah. But um, the freelance economy, it's kind of different, isn't it? Um, That's, I'm not actually sure. I've never filed for unemployment and I'm, curious to see I have a lot of freelance editor friends and I'm curious to see what is possible because mm-hmm. I don't know anything about because I heard something that they're including like unemployment to include gig and freelance workers but I don't know yeah I saw that on tv last night but yeah. like there's no further explanation yeah. and all of us are like well what does that mean like nobody yeah. knows I think a friend of mine is just and I may just in, apply as well and see what happens because what what's the worst that can happen but it's like yeah we're all suffering from this there's no nothing being filmed so that means there's nothing being edited mm-hmm. so you know what do we do yeah. <laughs> like yeah. we need unemployment as well yeah. yeah okay well let's take a look at the um the project that you sent over people don't want to think no more they just want to feel they want to let go all the girls want all they looking for is all they ask for is they keep wanting that look at you look at me look at you look at me Okay, so clearly there's like an intense style going on in that shot. You know, how did you find that style? How do you make it work? So I shared that one because it was one of the more challenging edits I've done. Um, Simply because the footage I was given, it was a still photographer who's amazing at film too, but all he had to work with was a white psych. So it was footage of the late twins, the dancers on a white psych. And it's like, okay, make something out of this. And like, 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, to make it interesting, when you just have someone on a string, simple background, it's all editing. So um, we played, uh, we, I know we wanted glitches and stuff because of the music was very glitchy. So I just started playing around with like, you know, compositing them on top of each other and like moving them in different ways and just like making it fun and and move a lot because, you know, have them slide in and out and just do anything. Since we had a white psych, it was easy to composite on top of each other. But it was really challenging because the music moved so fast and to keep it interesting, it was really a challenging edit, but I'm really happy with the way it came out. So that's why I was sharing that one because sometimes you just get footage that's like, there's nothing here to work with that's going to, you know, I mean, you just have to get creative. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, yeah. That's why it's, I like the, I like the way it came out because those guys were really fun to edit. Their dancing is amazing. Yeah. So when you, when they're like one person comes out from behind the other, were they dancing like that or did you put them like that? Uh, for the most part, they were dancing like that. I think there was maybe one shot where I put them like that. But there was a lot of like where there's ones in front and ones in back that was composited and like they move or they like that, that, that was all composited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that was all done in Premiere because I'm not an After Effects person. So. Oh, really? You did all of that in Premiere? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I did all that in Premiere. Wow. Um, I didn't know you could do that in Premiere, honestly. Like I've just been in After Effects doing stuff like this, but not stuff like that quality. That's awesome um so like the glitch that's in there and that's that's a premiere effect i may have downloaded an external plugin for that i can't i think it was a combination of in in program effects and then external plugins um but yeah i've gotten really i really like like matting in premiere and like compositing stuff on top of each other and playing with effects because a premiere has a very watered down version of what after effects has but it still has a lot of capabilities Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and the fact that it was um, black and white and so high contrast, I was able to really make sure those lines don't show when uh, when there's definitely multiple things going on uh-huh. where the lines are. So it was really a t- challenging project for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, um, there's one point where you would, like, mirror them, right? Yeah. They're back-to-back, but it's one person. Um, yeah. Did you like, did you fade in between there or was it just yes. so natural? So there, so there were, it was the two of them, the brother, one brother comes out from behind the other. Yeah. So that I just, you know, cropped and put them on top of each other. And then if you do a really big feather on the, the seam line, then it pretty much goes away. Hmm. Like really big feather. Um, that's why they're so much further apart <laughs> than like right there. Um, but yeah, it was it was, I don't, I didn't use any After Effects in that. We did have an After Effects artist work on that project. Just, there was a logo that we had to get rid of, but. Okay. That, it was all the <laughs> and stuff was done in Premiere. Premiere is pretty powerful. I mean, it can do a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Effects, so. Very cool. How did yeah. you find your, your style? Like, did people seek you out for that style? Um, and how did you, did you build it yourself? Like. Um, that style is for that edit is the first time I've, I mean, I have a music video background, so I've done stuff like that, but that was the first time I've done that kind of style. My style is mostly beauty and um, fashion. Mm -hmm. And And I love docu-style editing too, or documentaries. 
So um, I think just my music video ba background lends itself to people saying, oh, you've done all music videos. Here's a fashion thing we want done, music video style. So that's what this was. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So when you're looking for work for your next freelance opportunity or um, do you ever do TV shows? Um, I haven't yet or I haven't in a really long time. I've, I haven't done a lot of scripted narrative stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's like uh, luxury brands. Like I, I saw the coat um, on your website. I thought yeah. she was beautiful. Um, so is that like... Do those go on TV? It seems almost too luxurious for TV. I don't know if I'm watching the wrong channel or what. Most of them, yeah, most of them are just online. Um, a lot of them go on the brand uh, webpage or, you know, the commercials you see when you're watching anything online. Um, I've also just been traveling and seen some stuff I did in store, just like on, you know, in oh. their in store stuff. Um, some stuff I've done is for TV, but for the most part, it's usually online. I feel like that's where the media is now, mm -hmm. which is really a blessing for editors because there's so much more content needed. So there's like, you know, there'll be a, a commercial that may need, that may go on TV, but then they need like 10 more spots for Instagram, for YouTube, for uh, Facebook or whatever. Like there's so many more different um, derivatives that need to be created. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is your edit, your go-to editing workflow? Like, for example, some people will just like take all the footage and find, you know, in general what they want and layer and layer and just make this whole big conglomeration and then like condense it. Right. I feel like I've done that a couple of times and it takes forever, but you're super fast. Do you do something different? I will watch everything and make selects. That's my first go to. So I'll make different select sequences. I don't I don't like having big chunks. Cause it feels unorganized. I need to have like little. So if there's a, if there's a shot of like for this project, there was a shot of the solo dancer, one brother. So I just selects of him and then the selects of the other. And then I'll start going into, then I'll start going through the selects and pulling my favorite shots out. So if we're doing something that's like a non-narrative, then I'll just pull my favorite shots out and start putting them. I like working with music. So putting them um, to the track where I like it and then um, going through and doing that. And so the first edit is usually like, if we're do, trying to do a one minute thing, the first edit may be a minute and a half, two minutes. I try not to get like to the three, four, five, because then it's too hard to condense down. But I basically try to put in my favorite shots and not, I'll have, sometimes I'll have alternatives, like maybe two alternatives, but I don't like to have a whole stack. Like I see people's timelines where they have a whole stack of all, and it just, it stresses me out. <laughs> like I need things to be condensed. Then every time I know the shot's going to stick, then I just put it down on the on V1 and then leave it there. So then I know that that's like a main shot that we're keeping. Yeah. I like to keep things very like organized and condensed. So be bold, commit and move on is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. I mean, and if you're not sure what the client's going to want, then sure have choices. Sometimes I put a few choices underneath just to see. And just so when they're saying like, Hey, do you have anything else? It's like, Oh, these are the two, but th to keep it fast, it's like, pull your favorite shots. And if you have second choices, put them there. Mm -hmm. And that way you don't have to go through again when they're like, do you have something different? You just already have there. Cause you, you just got to trust yourself that you've already picked the best shots. You don't need to keep going back. If you do it right the first time and pick your favorite shots, you don't need to keep going back to find more, you know, think, and I think maybe that's where things get a little slower. Mm -hmm. You're like second guessing your choices. Yeah. Yeah. So what does the future hold for you? What are you looking forward to? 
Um, right now, everything's on hold. <laughs> <laughs> there was a possible project in India um, that I was looking forward to, but again, everything's on hold. Um, and so it's a difficult time to say, but I'm hoping I want to direct more docu style stuff and also edit. And then if I'm directing a longer form, I will not edit that again. Cause it's, you need the talent of an editor who has an outside eye, like yeah. directing and editing the feature doc that I just did. It was, we needed another editor. We had two amazing women editors come on, but we needed another editor because it was like, I can't see beyond what we shot and what was in my head and it's too hard, but for shorter term projects, shorter forms, I think we can, I can do both. It's, it's not as difficult, mm -hmm. but like for a documentary, you got to find the story and that requires someone outside. To do. <laughs> yeah. You can't separate yourself from all that footage. You know? Yeah. And you can't separate yourself from the story you intended as to the story that's actually there. Yeah. You know, docs are basically found in the edit. So yeah, so I'm not sure. I mean, I'm just looking forward to constantly trying new projects and new things and seeing seeing what comes about. Um, what, what kind of doc would you like to make? Anything, honestly, that empowers women or people of color or a subcult subculture. You know, anything that's kind of makes a a change mm -hmm. or shows or shines a light on some struggling. I'm actually. Um, producing one of the producers on a doc called The Noble Half, and it's about the transgender community in Pakistan. So we're just we're still shooting that, um, and I'm not editing it um, because my schedule got a little busy. But I'm kind of consulting, editing, and story developing and stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is it dangerous for people to participate in in the doc? I don't think so. It's surprising because. Pakistan is so oppressed in so many ways and they are a subculture and they are an outsider culture, but they also have legitimized a uh, third gender on the national ID cards. So you'd be male, female, or the third gender. Really? They also have a transgender uh, newscaster on a um, major national network. So it's like they're more advanced in some ways than we are. Um, but it is a, it is a, I think it is dangerous for the people in general just to live. So them being in a dock doesn't seem that much different. If any, if they know it can help their community, then they're willing to do it. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that about Pakistan. Yeah. I mean, we've even had a female prime minister. It's like, you know, <laughs> in a lot of ways it's a lot more advanced than we are here right now. Wow. Wow. Crazy. So what is it about women's stories or, well, you know, we were just talking about transgender. Maybe I shouldn't even focus on women's stories. Well, I, I just noticed on your IMD profile, you say women's. So I, that's why. Yeah. Um, what is it about the, that narrative that has stuck with you? Um, it's just something that's always been in me. Like um, my mother was a feminist. You know, she grew up in Pakistan she was supposed to get married a couple of times, but she's like, I'm not going to get married until I become a doctor. So she, you know, cut off her long hair and went to medical school and, and became a psychiatrist. Um, and it was only once she was done with medical school that she decided to get married. And then, you know, when she met my father, they moved to the States and then I was born here, but she was just always like, she, she always said like, don't depend on a man for anything. 
make sure you can make your own money, make sure you can support yourself. And a man is a nice thing to have when you want one. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so she's basically saying like, you know, just take care of yourself. Don't depend on anyone to take care of you. And that always really resonated with me. And so I feel like living in a patriarchal society, it's important to tell women's stories and uphold women's stories and help other women out as much as possible. Because I feel like for so long we were depending on the culture to help us, like the general culture, and that's not happening. And especially in this day and age with the whole Me Too and Time's Up, it's like women are really helping other women. And that's so important. And so it's just something that has always resonated with me. And I don't know why, but it's like I get very impassioned when when I see a woman being <laughs> uh, undermined or undervalued. And it's like, no, you're just as valuable as your male counterparts, if not more so sometimes. So, yeah. Well, from the position that you're at in your editing career, how do you feel like women in your field or in, in our field um, – like, are we held to a higher standard than maybe men who do the same job? What, what is your expert opinion on that? I think that's the case across the board in any field. I think women have to do 10 times more to be seen as equal. Um, I don't know how many times, like, I and my colleagues have been passed up for work simply because we're women. And they don't ever say that, but you know, the, you're just not right for the project or this or that, or our clients are a little more old fashioned. It's like, you're all saying the same thing. I feel like women always have to work harder. I mean, even if you look at just the elections, the primaries, like you had amazing candidates and <laughs> one of the one who was a woman, uh, I'm thinking of Elizabeth Warren, like she was, in my opinion, the smartest and most qualified. Um, but I think her sex is what really hindered her. Um, and I know she's, she's spoken about how it's just, it's just the, the way it is. It's just, it's, we're still not ready. I feel like we would have a, a gay man president before we can have a woman president at this point. Um, so I think it's in all fields, it's across the board that women always have to prove themselves more and you have to balance this line between being aggressive, but not too aggressive being, you know, commanding, but not too commanding. And, Mm-hmm. And all this, like, not to, and I've gotten to the point where I just say, you know, F it. I, I'm not going to apologize if you're intimidated or if you're thinking I'm too strong or too aggressive. It's, or, I'm, I mean, if you think I'm a bitch, that's fine. Because what <laughs> I that I'm, yeah, I'm standing up for myself and I'm standing up for what I think is right, yeah. whether it be certain decisions. And obviously it's a collaborative. It's not like, no, this is my way. But just, I feel like women apologize too much for their presence. And that's on us. We've been, we've been raised that way. And we've been raised not to take up space. And I think it's time that stops. We take up space. We don't apologize for our opinions. We not act like men, but I mean, if you look at how men act, they, they don't apologize for things and they get more respect. And it's a sad way that that's how it has to be. But I feel like women have to stop apologizing for existing and taking up space. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a personal difficulty for me. I feel like I'm always apologizing for stuff. Um, just, but, um, and there, there's another question there that I have. I'm not sure how many other people want to know. But, like, if you're going to be an actress in Hollywood, you have to be, you, like, you have to meet that certain physical standard of sexiness. 
Like, mm-hmm. is that something that editors are, and you're in New York, but do you feel any pressure to feel or to look sexier or to not look too sexy to have a job in this field? Um, I do think, I, I'm not one that dresses sexy, I wouldn't say. I I like, I always have liked men's clothes. I mean, I'm wearing a blazer and like a you know, man's <laughs> top. Um, but I do think the society that we live in, if you look too sexy, you may not be taken as seriously. That doesn't mean you can't look too sexy or sexy. It just means you're going to have to prove yourself that much more in this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a shitty thing to have. We should be able to wear what we want. But the reality is the reality. Um, for me, I don't, I don't, I just dress how I dress. I try to look professional. Um, I think you look edgy. That's, I think that's, that's how I'm That's like rock star necklace and jacket right there. (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I think I, it's again, like I was saying, like Mariah has a brand, right? We know what that is. I think I also work on having a brand and edgy is the brand because when I, when I'm say interviewing for a job, I want my look to portray my aesthetic. And that is what people hire a lot of editors on is their aesthetic. So for, especially for me, it's a little different because I work in fashion and beauty. So it's like my aesthetic is going to translate into the edit. Whereas like if you're doing a documentary, it really doesn't matter what, you're wearing. So honestly, I feel like it's whatever anyone feels like wearing, but we are in a society where we women get judged for everything we do, including the way we dress. Mm -hmm. So maybe find the brands that you personally identify with. Like if you don't wear Prada, maybe you don't apply to Prada freelance sort of thing. Um, no, I don't necessarily think that because, you know, Prada's probably going to pay pretty well, <laughs> that job. but I think if you just, um, if you just, I guess it comes down to if you're just comfortable in what you're wearing, you're going to exude confidence and that's what's going to get you the job. Oh yeah. That's, that's your mother. That's your mother coming out the psychology Yes, that's true. <laughs> Do you feel like having having a mom who did what she did, has that helped you be a better editor? Because so much of what we do is about making people feel a certain way or in- inviting people to feel a certain way, right? Yeah, um, I guess so. I've never thought about that. I guess so, because it is about we're trying to convey thing, emotional things with our choices in editing. So if you're in tune to what elicit certain emotions, then you'll make that choice. And I guess I have had clients tell me that I am a more subtle emotional editor. And maybe that is because my mom always had psychology running through the house. (laughs) We knew um, how to be in touch with certain emotions and what, yeah, I guess, I mean, yeah, I, I, that might. I, it's, it's honestly like a. I, I've never thought about that. So that's an interesting. Maybe it's just second nature, and so it's been with you so long that it's just part of you. Probably. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about while we're still on here? Um. No, I just hope. I mean, I think we kind of touched on it. I really just want to inspire other women to be bold and and don't apologize 
don't apologize for taking up space and don't apologize for your opinions. And even things like taking the word just out of your emails, which I started doing, you know, when you're like, hey, I'm just checking in to, or I'm just wanting to find out. The just is kind of an apologetic word. Uh-huh. So I've started just saying, you know, hi, I'm checking in to find out, blah, blah, blah. Because it's women who do it. Yeah. And stop, stop apologizing. Literally, like if you bump into someone, you don't need to say sorry. You can say, excuse me. What about it's- the word thank you? Is, is that like, do we thank people too much also? For example, do. yeah, I think it depends. Like I'm, I'm very appreciative and I like to thank people when they've done something for me, but I, I do end my emails with thanks. But I think if the context of the email is like, I'm checking in on when I will receive my paycheck. Thanks. <laughs> That's different than I'm just checking in. It's, you know, it sends a different message. I do think we, we thank people too much for things that don't need to be thanked. But that doesn't bother me as much as the apologetic words and, and tone that we all, we all, I think, send out mm-hmm. and we train to send out. Mm-hmm. Do you, as somebody who's maybe listening to this and it's okay, okay I'm going to take the word just out. I'm never going to say that again. I'm going to not do any kind of apology ever again. Like, has there been a time in your career that you know, you've committed to this? And you came across too strong and you knew that that hurt something in your career or in your life? Um, There's definitely, I think I come across too strong a lot of times to a lot of people. Um, And I think that's okay. That goes back to me not, I don't care if people think I'm a bitch because I know I'm a nice person. And I had an experience where someone was telling me, a man was telling me something that was absolutely wrong. And I responded and said, no, that's not right. Actually, it's this, this, and that. And he's like, you know what? This is not okay. You need to, if you want to talk any further, you have to have a meeting in person with me. And I'm just like, you know, I'm sorry you feel that I've offended you, but, um, you know, this person was here during this time. And I just, I, it really bothered me, but it also was like, this person has a problem taking any kind of attitude or direction from a woman. And this is his issue. It's not mine. All I could do is try to get the job done. So there are going to be times where people counter, but I, I feel like if you know what you stand for and you know what you are doing, voice yourself. I've been in so many meetings, you know, clients come into the edit bay and there's two men and a woman and a woman says something like, Oh, we should try this. And the men ignore it. And then the man literally says the same thing. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's try it. And I said, oh, didn't she just say that? I hate that. I hate, I hate that. that. Yeah. And so now I'm just saying, oh, yeah, she just said that. Because it's like, no. And I'm, I mean, I, I also have, you know, for new people, for people who are just starting out in post, you kind of have to be a little bit more gentle in the way you come across to clients. But for someone who has, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm at the point where I'm like, I don't care anymore. If I don't work with you again, I'll work with someone else <laughs> so, <laughs> for everyone. But there is, um, there is something to be said for just speaking up for yourself. And for me, it's also for other women. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, I'm, I'm sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to change right now. It's going to change. And it is changing. It is. I mean, there's such a demand in the show as a lot of you have experience like such a demand for women now for women directors women editors women dps it's changing so we got to step up into that role and not apologize for being there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I'm just gonna end the episode here. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it is on purpose. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. I think you have some really great experience, and there's some lessons here that we can apply like today. So, um, yeah, that's really powerful, and I can't wait to to see what you do with your documentary ideas and. Hopefully we'll get through this whole pandemic thing soon. So well, we will. Everyone just stay calm and sane. <laughs> <laughs> <a puzzle>. right. <laughs> yeah, really. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been so fun. Thanks, Vera. Have a great day. You too. All right. Bye.